Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books Network. This is Morteza Hajizadeh, your host from Critical Theory Channel. Today, I'm honored to have Dr. Jacqueline Broad with us. Uh, Jacqueline Broad is a professor of philosophy and also the head of the Monash Philosophy Department uh, in Melbourne, Australia. Her main research uh, area is women's philosophy of the 17th and 18th centuries. Jacqueline, welcome to New Books Network. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Uh, can you please introduce yourself first, give us a little bit background about yourself, how you became interested in philosophy, and especially how you became interested in uh, history of women's philosophy? Sure. Um, well, as you said, I'm uh, currently a professor of philosophy at Monash University in Melbourne. I grew up in Tasmania uh, and from uh a background that did not have any professors, in fact, did not have any uh, family members who ever went to university. Um, So I grew up not really knowing what philosophy was. Um, But in high school, I I actually went to a matriculation college, which, as you may know, is years 11 and 12 of a high school. Um, And at that matric, we studied European literature and we studied books like Waiting for Godot and um, Pirandello's Six Characters in Search of an author and Dostoevsky's notes from underground and so on and something that emerged from reading those texts is they they all had something in common and and that was that they tended to uh, well the characters in in the works tended to be searching for meaning tended to be looking for a purpose in life or um, some kind of guidelines or policies on how to live because no one seemed to, uh, to know how to make their lives worthwhile and I didn't realise it at the time, but it was pre- this was pretty much a, a, a unit in philosophy that I was studying. And that only really occurred to me when I got to university, when uh, the very first um, philosophy subject I took at the University of Tasmania was called The Meaning of Life. And uh, in that unit, we looked at the possibility that you know your entire life's efforts might be rendered absurd and pointless in a moment um was there some way to avoid a life that was pointless and useless and absurd and i think i think i'm still looking for the answers for that but uh it was a good grounding in ethical philosophy of course moral philosophy and thinking about how one should live um So how did my interest in women philosophers come about? Well, um, it was an unfortunate feature of my undergraduate uh, training that we never, in fact, looked at women 
philosophers in any of the subjects I taught. So even that unit that I was talking about on the meaning of life, we looked at Albert Camus, we looked at Sartre, we looked at a number of figures, and of course they were all men. And and the University of Tasmania was not unusual at the time for having a curriculum that focused entirely on men. It was actually, uh, in the 1990s, this was just a, a standard thing. And I found it quite unusual, though, because I also did English literature, where we looked at a number of women authors, Jane Austen, Charlotte Bronte, Dorothy Wordsworth, Mary Shelley. We, it was pretty much 50% w- women, I think. And so I come to realise that that philosophy had a bit of a woman problem and in particular they just weren't there. Um, And it's not that there weren't actually any women in the history of philosophy, that's what I soon discovered. It's just that uh, their works were being neglected by historians of philosophy. Uh, yeah, that was fascinating. When I, cause I, I, my background is not philosophy, but I've been reading history of philosophy, and it's kind of, uh, for, yeah, it's very much male-dominated. And like I told you before we started recording the interview, I've been doing, I'm, I'm planning to do a series of interviews on women's philosophers, so I'm doing a lot of reading, and it's just absolutely amazing. A range of, a whole range of different philosophers who have also been in contact with main established male philosophers, which we'll talk about in a minute. But uh, amazingly, their names are kind of either forgotten or a lot of people don't even know about them. And one might just think that maybe they just had a random, you know, foray into philosophy. But when you read their works, they're actually engaging with very, very deep philosophical ideas, quite original and authentic. And we'll be talking about some of these uh, today. But before uh, we start talking about the book, can you tell us, First, how the book came, why you decided to write a book about female philosophers, their correspondence, especially in the 17th century. And also tell us who Eileen O'Neill is, because you dedicated the book to her. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for asking those questions. How did the book come about? Well, I mentioned to you that it very quickly became apparent that there was this significant gap in the history of philosophy when it came to women um, and that there was work to be done there. And as I said, it was not the case that um, there were no works. It's just that uh, they hadn't been republished. They were still in archives and rare book rooms and so on. So this book began... Uh, with my PhD, basically, which was uh, more than 20 years ago now. And um, I, for the purpose of my PhD, uh, I had to go and do a lot of archival research. So I was visiting manuscript archives, I was visiting rare book rooms, particularly in England and Europe. Um, Today, of course, I would simply have to stay at home and search the internet, but I feel like I was very lucky at the time because none of this material was online and I got to go and sit uh, in beautiful libraries. I got to uh, do my work in the Duke Humphreys, uh, which is uh, the Bodleian Library. It features in uh, the Harry Potter movies. And during those visits, I ended up reading a lot of letters, a lot of manuscript letters. And I quickly came to the realisation that some of the most interesting contributions by women to debates of the period were going on in their correspondence. Correspondence with, uh, in some cases, quite famous and well-known men uh, whose names uh, may be forgotten to us, but if you you study uh, philosophy at university, you'll, you'll know the names John Locke, 
uh, René Descartes, um, Gottfried Leibniz, uh, and so on. So some quite prominent men were the correspondents of these women. Um, and so I wanted to bring these letters together, but it took, it took me 20 years to do it. So, so this book is, has been in the wings for a long time. I wanted to do it because I thought that if you brought them together as a collection, you could show that um, women actually did make quite a substantial contribution through uh, their correspondence to uh, the history of philosophy in the 17th century um, on a number of issues, metaphysics, epistemology, philosophy of religion, ethics, um, and so on. Um, but I thought it's not enough just to put the letters out there on the internet. Okay, they, some of them are out there now. So there's, there's photographs of their manuscripts and there's uh, you know, printed transcriptions out there and so on. But they needed good editing. They needed to be in modern typography. That's, uh, you know, a kind of typeface that we would recognise. Um, they needed an explanation of the background debates that were going on because many of those debates uh, passed into oblivion and no one has ever heard of them. They also needed explanations of obscure terms, words that we don't use today or words that we do use but have completely different meanings. And, of course, there would be a number of unfamiliar names in uh, the texts. So that's how um, this edition came about. It's, it's me uh, trying to fill in the gaps there and, and make what would be inaccessible to the standard reader become accessible once again to give them the background and the tools they needed. Eileen O'Neill was, in fact, the editor of the book series that this is published in, which is Oxford New Histories of Philosophy. Um, but she was also very much a pioneer in the field of the history of women's philosophy. So she was a philosopher herself, a professor of philosophy at the University of Massachusetts, UMass in Amherst in the States and she organized one of the first conferences on the history of women's philosophy back in 1997 so the previous century um, and she brought together a number of people who weren't necessarily experts on um, women philosophers but certainly knew uh, the, the background to um, and, and uh, the connections that a number of 17th century men had at the time uh, so there was an expert on Descartes talking on Elizabeth of Bohemia. Um, they, they corresponded with one another. Um, and, and also experts on a man called Henry Moore talking about Anne Conway, who's in my book. But it, so it was very exciting for me. And the first time I met Eileen, she was in fact discussing the correspondence between Locke and Masham. So um, I, once I got there, I knew I was in the place I needed to be. Uh, and of course, it was very lucky for me to make her acquaintance. She examined my PhD thesis. She was one of the few people in the world at the time who would have been qualified um, to examine it. And uh, she subsequently wrote letters of reference for me and supported promotion applications and things like that. So she made it possible for me to build a career studying women, which was really not a path, not a career path that anyone could possibly have taken before her and, and other uh, women in the 1990s um, came into philosophy departments and started 
doing this research, she made it both practically and intellectually possible for me to go on in a career on this topic. And of course, she also showed great kindness to me. And she was a great editor. And sadly, um, she died before the book was published, but it has benefited from her um, insights and her suggestions about how to order material and so on. Um, So my book... The series itself and even my career, a testament to the tremendous legacy that Eileen left uh, to the history of philosophy. And that's that's why I dedicated the book. Amazing. Uh, I've come across her name in a couple of other books, so it's really good to, to know a little bit about her. Uh, so let's talk about this book a little bit. Uh, you talk about four authors here, and you discuss their and you present their correspondence with with with, with other philosophers. Uh, when, when you analyze their correspondence, do you feel that, w- what does it reveal about, let's say, the depth of the thoughts? Is it that they are randomly engaging with different philosophical ideas, or do you see a trajectory and evolution or a systematic approach to, to some ideas that are of, of, of interest to them? Yeah, well... At first read, some of the ideas may appear to be random, like you just delve into the book, look on the first page. You know, it does seem like women are discussing ideas that just have just occurred to them. But actually, when you when you read the, the body of the correspondence in the context of later developments in their thoughts, and in particular... Uh, in the context of printed, published works that they went on um, to, um, you know, to publish later, you can see an evolution in their thinking on certain topics. You can see recurring themes amidst all the, um, you know, the, the usual sort of banter that goes on in letters. You can see uh, topics uh, occur again and again. To give one example, um, so there, there aren't many letters from Anne Conway, um, but the letters that I have included are from a very early uh, correspondence she had with a Platonist called Henry Moore. And um, he's her mentor and he's, uh, he's teaching her the Cartesian philosophy. And in one letter, she just asks a series of questions and there are no, there's no attempt to answer those questions. In fact, it, it's almost as though uh, she, she wants Moore's guidance on these questions. But um, the questions themselves are very interesting. They, they are questions such as, well, if the body is sinful, which a number of uh, philosophers thought it was at the time, if it was a source of vice and, and sin and so on, then why did God create the body and join it together with this more perfect soul, this more noble part of ourselves? And that seems like an innocent uh, question to us, but... When you look at the the entire body of her work, it's a it's a kind of guiding principle that um, governs most of her writing. She's for her um, published work called the Principles of the Most Ancient and Modern Philosophy. She asks at the very beginning, what kind of world would a just and benevolent God create? Would he create a world in which there was this material thing, this, let's call it body, which had no life, no perception? It was utterly dead. Would a just and benevolent God create such a world? And she comes to the conclusion, no, of course not, because that material body could never um, improve itself. It would be incapable of its own motion. It couldn't move forward. Um, and so this forms the basis of uh, a theory that, in fact, mind uh, and intelligence, in fact, permeates the entire universe, uh, helps it to move, helps it to perceive, and so on. Um, And so seemingly random questions turned out to 
be guiding thoughts behind the development of our own original philosophy in her published work. Similarly, I have a series of letters by a woman called Elizabeth Burnett, and if you just open those letters up randomly too, you'll see her berating her correspondent, who was John Locke, uh, for not being charitable, not being humble in a, a long philosophical disputation he was having with another man. You might think this is just an instance of her uh, sort of telling him off, like he was basically telling him he should stay quiet in the future. But then when you look at the correspondence in the context of Burnett's later published work, which was called A Method of Devotion, she actually um, develops in that work a theory about the best way to carry out philosophical disputes. And, of course, in such disagreements, one should be humble, one should have humility, one should not be proud because that's going to lead to anger. You need to be charitable towards the other person's opinion. You need to be open-minded. And you can see in that text that there is implicit criticism of Locke there because he himself had a similar guiding philosophy about how to carry out disagreements and it was the same one that she was advocating a philosophy of charity and humility and so on so she was basically pressing Locke um, to follow his own advice here in the letters seemingly um, berating him as a friend but uh, you know when you look at the bigger picture you can see that here um, these seemingly random comments are actually part of a bigger picture Again, I saw my role as an editor to be to point that out where mm. I could. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and when when you analyze their letters and correspondence, so uh, what does it achieve? What kind of standard of histories does it achieve that their male counterparts do not achieve? Yeah, well, I um, I think uh, letters are really interesting, including the letters of women uh, philosophers, um, as opposed to looking at uh, the standard treatises of men. It, it enables you to see the philosophy at the time as involving more of a dialectic, if you like, and by that I mean more of a kind of um, a pattern of there being arguments for and arguments against, and people working out positions together collectively based on feedback. And, and you know, so it gives you a richer sense of philosophy at the time. I mean, look, there are, I should say, there are um, many volumes of the correspondence of men during the period, but it seemed to be quite peripheral to their philosophy and maybe not uh, intimately related to it. But given that women only really had the epistolary format in which to explore philosophical ideas, um, including those letters in, you know, and, and and highlighting the contribution they made to the history of philosophy of time does uh, highlight something different to the standard histories of philosophy that look at only the treatises of men because it, it helps you to see philosophy as much more collaborative and cooperative, which, as we know, it really is. It does rely on feedback. It relies on criticism. And one of the nice things about the letters between men and, and women philosophers is that um, they weren't afraid to criticise each other, or let, let's put it this way, to, to, to raise polite objections to one another's views, um, which, of course, the men could not do in their printed treatises. It was not thought to be appropriate for a man to criticise a woman in public, in such a public forum as a published treatise. So you, they almost never name a woman philosopher. They really name um 
men of the period too, although every now and again they will acknowledge that uh, they may have been indebted to some man or other, but they definitely don't um, name women. And I think that's because of a certain etiquette at the time that um, made that um, unseemly or it is inappropriate. Uh, so, But in the letters, of course, and the letters are usually between friends, there's much more of this open spirit of inquiry and pursuit of ideas um, that enables criticisms to be raised and for women to improve their positions in light of that pushing back from the male authors, if you like. So that's what I think um, adding uh, women's letters and the contribution that women made to philosophy from their letters to the history of philosophy. I think uh, this is what it adds that, you know, a focus on standard treatises doesn't really um, give you. And... uh... So, so in these correspondence, in these correspondences, they were exchanging ideas with uh, fellow philosophers. Uh, were they just engaging with the ideas that had already been established, or did they have any, let's say, new or authentic original thoughts as well? And what I liked was that in the book you do mention that even male philosophers kind of tested out their ideas in dialogue with one another. So it's not something that is peculiar to women. So can you talk about that a bit? Yeah, so I think no one ever writes in a vacuum. It was a bit of a myth in the 17th century that these great geniuses just appeared and they didn't read anyone else and they just spun out all these thoughts like cobwebs from their minds, you know. Um, and no one writes in a vacuum. So the women were, were no different to that. They they relied on um, the, you know, the support and the assistance of their male um, interlocutors their fathers and husbands and friends and so on. Um, and so in that sense, um, you know, they, they are building on, in some cases, the views of male authors. However, I do think when they did build on top of those views, they did come to develop startlingly original views of their own. And Conway and Cavendish, so Anne Conway and Margaret Cavendish are two authors whose correspondences I include in the text. Um, When you step back and look at the metaphysical theories they develop, so that's theories of the world, like the nature of the world and God's creation and so on, um, they they have some, they owe some parts of those um, visions to the male philosophers of the time, but they are startlingly different. In particular, because they almost veer into kind of atheistic territory in some cases that I think their male uh, contemporaries were not prepared to do so. Um, I'm thinking in particular of um, Margaret Cavendish's viewpoint that there's no spiritual substances in the created world, in the material world, um, and that everything is composed of matter. Um, But Conway too had um, this viewpoint that there's no... Um, substantial distinction between mind and body. This too um, gives rise to a kind of panpsychism that we see in Cavendish's uh, philosophy as well. And and her contemporaries were very scathing of any kind of panpsychist uh, philosophies of the period. They believed that the only um, entities that think uh, spiritual, immaterial entities, and that of course matter is dead and lifeless and cannot have perception. Um, so I think they were able to be quite original and part of the reason might have been that they didn't have that stuffy scholastic education that their male peers did. They weren't working within the confines of their university education because, of course, 
they weren't permitted uh, to attend university. In many cases, they were only educated up to about the age of 13. Um, so they could read and they could write as gentlewomen, I should say. The lower classes, of course, um, didn't uh, typically educate girls at all. Um, and so this enabled them to, to um, you know, think a little more freely. Um, one other way in which they were original is in terms of developing feminist views. Um, they, uh, that, of course, that thing doesn't come out as strongly in the letters, I should say, but in some of their published works, uh, you do find um, them using philosophy and the critical tools of philosophy to raise questions about women's lack of education, but mainly, but also women's lack of freedom within marriage and, um, and also uh, various other issues that were of particular concern to women. Men do raise those questions every now and again, but not with the same force and not with the same centrality of concern in their writings. Um, so, so, uh, did, and did they rely like on a male philosopher as a guide to help them navigate these these issues? They did, and they, they had to. So, yeah, and that's mainly for practical reasons, um, the reasons that I was just explaining, that they weren't educated in universities. So that meant also that they didn't have very sophisticated language skills. So, so they didn't have Latin and they didn't have Greek. So a lot of um, European philosophy in the time was written in Latin. So if you couldn't read it, you were sort of prevented, of course, from uh, engaging in philosophical reflection on those texts. So we find in one correspondence in my book uh, between Moore and Conway, Moore actually translates Descartes' principles of philosophy from Latin, uh, several select chapters, for the purpose of teaching Conway the Cartesian philosophy. Um, So in that sense, yes, she was very reliant on a male mentor to help her there. Um, They also um, needed men to support them, um, perhaps more mm, psychologically or emotionally speaking, because women were actively discouraged from pursuing learning in the period. Let let me put it this way, that kind of university learning, what we would see as academic um, studies. Because it, it was just thought it would take them too far beyond their sphere. Like it was useless learning, if you get what I mean. It was a waste of their time. And, of course, fathers were concerned that that would make their daughters unmarriageable. Who wants a learned woman for a wife? That was a, that was a real concern in the period. And then there was another concern, uh, which I think was more myth than anything, which was that too much learning would make women mad. It would send them insane. So... They, there are many prejudices, many obstacles to pursuing studies. They needed sympathetic men. They needed their brothers and their husbands and their fathers to help them um, navigate the philosophical terrain. Um, but, of course, once they had, did have a bit of a background training, especially in the Cartesian philosophy, um, they could then go on and they then had uh, those valuable methods and critical sk- thinking skills they needed um, because, of course, Cartesian philosophy taught that you didn't need to go to university, you just needed to use your mind, you needed to use that natural logic. So encouraged women to look within themselves and see that they had all the tools that they needed in order to search for truth and find wisdom and virtue through their own intellectual efforts. So they needed the men to, to introduce them to that and then, of course, once 
once I had that background and that training in Cartesian philosophy, it was a only a simple step towards teaching themselves how to think methodically and how to think critically. Mm. And not all men have been accommod had been accommodating or let's say uh, or, or complimenting women on this because you talk about Robert Whitehall so, and his comment about women's lack of originality. Can you talk about that, please? Yeah, sure. So, um, so Robert Whitehall, I, I'm not sure who he was to tell you the truth. He's, he's a nobody. He's an Oxford poet. He's an Oxford poet from 1674, but I'd never heard of him before. But there is this manuscript very interesting to me because the manuscript is called The Woman's Right and you don't hear much talk about women's rights in the period but when you read the manuscript it's kind of this um, it's kind of this dialogue between Whitehall and, and a woman who is arguing for a woman's right and he um, is taking the negative viewpoint and he says uh, in one part of the manuscript he says that although some women have arrived to such heights of perfection as with Aristotle and Descartes to stand on the mountains of metaphysics and philosophy and view the glories of both, with Tully and Demosthenes have charmed the ear with their ravishing oratory, and with kings and potentates have swayed the sceptre of government, yet have any attained to the same pitch with men? And whence drew they these waters? Out of their own wells? No, these are too shallow. Therefore, Rebecca-like, they bring their pictures to the wells the men had dug. So the Whitehall saying here that, okay, so there's some women who've engaged in philosophy, but he's speaking a kind of sentiment which unfortunately is still around today, which is that no woman is really capable of being a topping philosophical genius. Rather, she's just going to build on what the men have done. Men men have done great things, um, but women, they just ape and mimic. And they, they, even the best women are never going to be as good as the best men when it comes to philosophy. It's basically what he's saying there. Um, and, uh, you know... Um, it, it's it's a viewpoint, as I said, it's still around today. There's still a, quite a tendency to see these women as the disciples of men. And to some extent, perhaps um, publishing the philosophical correspondence might confirm some people in that opinion. Um, but it's, I think it's really unfortunate that they're always automatically seen as the disciples of men in the way that Whitehall sees them. Um Men are given intellectual authority to be leaders in their field, um, to have followers and disciples, but women are almost never given that authority. Why not? Because no one discusses or applauds or studies their works, and because no one discusses or applauds or studies them, they become forgotten. And, of course, that confirms the viewpoint that no woman ever has ever published anything original. And, of course, it's a vicious cycle and it just goes on and on um so uh i think whitehall's being unfair and uncharitable there not seeing that we can stop that vicious cycle by giving women their due and studying them a little bit more closely being charitable and and seeing that in fact there are original ideas in there of course it may be that there's nothing new under the sun but then that should hold even for the men as well because uh even like the great topping geniuses like Descartes borrowed from other sources and we know that now even though he didn't always explicitly acknowledge it his work derived from Augustine his work derived from Aristotle and from the scholastics and so on and a whole bunch of white dudes that came before him you know so um even he wasn't the apparent original thinker that we give him credit for but we still respect him as a sophisticated and um 
incredibly influential um, and important thinker. And I think uh, women, likewise, we should give them the benefit of the doubt here. Mm. So now let's talk about some of these philosophers. You've included four philosophers, and I can tell the first one might be your favorite because it's like 70 or 80 pages of the book, right, Margaret Cavendish? <laughs> okay, so I, I would be happy to talk about her. Uh, she, just was, she was just prolific and voluminous and wrote so much. She wrote at least six lengthy philosophical treatises in her lifetime. She was a duchess. So Margaret Cavendish was the duchess of Newcastle and she lived um, from memory, I think her dates are 1623 to 1673. Um, and she was in, she was very lucky, she was very fortunate in her husband who was very supportive of her um, views, uh, her her, uh, her activities, I should say, too, her publishing activities. He would always write lovely prefaces praising her, her worth and her um, her um, her great philosophical skill. Um, and she, uh, he was part, William Cavendish was part of the Newcastle Circle, which included um, quite famous philosophers like Thomas Hobbes um, and I think Rene Descartes used to pop in every now and again as well um so um would you like me to talk more about her works uh yeah well so let's briefly into you just talked about like who she was uh, uh topics that i'm kind of interested in like she you, she had this fictional character that she engaged with maybe you can talk about some of the male philosophers that she corresponded with and i when i was reading about her ideas on um the innate life of things i was struck that it's quite modern like uh because I had to read a little bit of Latour, uh, affect theory, and uh, I was struck by how similar arguments were. <laughs> right. <laughs> those ideas. Yeah. I okay. Yeah. Sure. So, um, the, I've included excerpts from a book she published called Philosophical Letters, where she takes issues with some of the biggest thinkers of her time. Some of those thinkers won't be familiar to to us today, but most will have heard of Descartes and will have heard of Hobbes and so she engages with them in the book um, but unfortunately Hobbes and Descartes who were her contemporaries were not so interested in engaging with her um, we have only one letter from Hobbes he wrote to thank her for something she'd sent him and and that was it it was almost a little bit dismissive she met him and she was party or witness to the conversations he had about liberty which were later very famously published um uh, the debates about liberty with a man called Bramhall um and her husband Margaret Cambridge's husband was part of um that dialogue too I take it um so she was mixing with the the bigwigs and and also she had dinner with Descartes but she says he never said a single word to her because he didn't speak English and she didn't speak French. So, and she was also, I should say, she was also painfully shy. So she has this imaginary correspondent in her philosophical letters. And I think it's part of the reason, first of all, she didn't have anyone, she certainly didn't seem to have other women that she could talk to these issues about. Um, but she's developed this device, this imaginary pen pal, and she writes to this person and this person just happens to ask the best kind of questions so that Margaret Cavendish can spell out her views on all these philosophers and in the process of spelling out 
where she stands in relation to these male philosophers' views, she spells out her own uh, philosophy. So I think it's very convenient for her to have this device because this woman, um, presumably this woman correspondent she has, she just calls her madam, has no schooling, uh, has perhaps no intimate knowledge of the scholastic philosophy and terminology that a male correspondent would have had. And she just asks her questions about Margaret Cavendish's idea. So um, it's a convenient tool. It's a little bit artificial, of course, because these are just, um, you know, in a way it's also just a way of um, presenting the work without having to have a structure because it's just letter after letter and there's just um there's no real method or consistency there and how the ideas are discussed and there's a lot of repetition uh it's still a lot of fun um to read yeah oh well would you like me now to sorry Perhaps we should have this part edited out where, because of course you asked me what the content of the her philosophy was and you thought it sounded very modern. Shall I start? Uh, sorry, you've gone. Uh, you've... Oh, sorry, uh, my microphone wasn't mute. Yeah. I forgot to unmute. I understand. That's yes. right. We can we can edit this out. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. So, uh, I, yeah, I'm actually interested to know more about her ideas as well. And like you said, she talked about uh, the the innate life of things. If I'm not That's mistaken, right. yeah. That's right. Um, so, uh, yes, it's a it's a very um, it's a very original theory, but it also has some affinity to the Stoic philosophy. So, her viewpoint is that the entire universe is composed of matter, of physical substance, but that substance has two kind of principles um, innate in it, if you like. It has an active principle. And, and a passive one, so to speak. There's animate matter, and that's made up of reason and sense. And then there's inanimate matter, um, which is the dull material that the animate matter acts on and shapes and designs and so on. Um, so uh, the idea behind this philosophy is that it is essentially panpsychist. Take any particle of matter you like, and it's composed of life and sense and reason and intelligence maybe not the same intelligence that you and i have because we're uh, composed as um sophisticated human beings with uh conscious minds and so on but there's nevertheless a mental aspect to every particle of matter in the universe um and so this influences her causal theory she you know we think that um when you um uh, you know, um, see something, see a sheep, um, that there are, uh, you know, or at least a contemporary thought there are certain particles that uh, interact with your eye. And uh, she actually thought that your eye does the active work there, patterning out what it sees. There's something um, alive within uh, material substance that enables it to imitate uh, what it sees. A, a bizarre kind of causal theory, but not not um so um not so um beyond the realms of possibility uh, there are some philosophers who hold views that are not unlike us I and mean, you mentioned that you saw similarities in uh, one author and there are certainly 
panpsychists today who are keen to defend the theory from the usual kind of objections it gets like oh does that mean when we tread on rocks in the streets that they crying out in pain but we can't hear them kind of thing you know they um she tries to address those kind of absurdities in her work as well um so highly original uh viewpoint like Almost nothing else in the period um, developed from her opposition to some of these figures who see matter as, as dead and lifeless and without perception. And uh, she also was, she, she also kind of, like her ideas about these, uh, these issues evolved and she changed later on her ideas, as you have pointed out in her correspondence. So you can see that maybe they were uh, critical of their own work constantly yeah. trying to kind of improve upon that yeah totally because when she first began she was actually an atomist so that was that was typical of the newcastle circle i was talking about there were atomists amongst that group um uh gassendi gassandi uh french thinker he was uh, an atomist who an epicurean atomist who was part of that group and so on she moved away from that and she moved away from this viewpoint first of all that they're atoms so she, she moved to a theory that in fact that nature the material world took place in a plenum so there were no no vacuums and then she also um she also eliminated the language of spirits from her um her philosophy so many of her contemporaries thought that spirits in nature were responsible for all the life emotion material things so yes there is this dead material substance let's call it matter or body um how does it get moving like this is one of the puzzles of the period like how does it spark into life and and her contemporaries thought it was spiritual substance that did that, that had, um, you know, could give things force and energy and so on. But she thought it was inherent to matter itself because all matter is alive in some respect and all of it has this designing force permeated throughout it. Um, so, uh, yes, yeah, so um, she, uh, she developed her theory to get rid of those spirits, so that that's there early on. The kind of the kind almost like the kind of theory of contemporaries were developing. But she got bolder, and she uh, I think the um, correspondences and uh, she did actually have some real correspondences with men. I should add with Charlton and and Glanville, and there I've included letters in the volume. These gave her uh, the confidence, I think, to develop her own views. And of course, I think just naturally you get older and you and you give up on trying to um, please others and you uh, go out there and you develop your own uh, philosophy, which unfortunately for her was it kind of branded her a bit of a heretic and an atheist. But of course, she was a duchess, so no one said that to her face. So mm. she was pretty safe. <laughs> uh, let's talk about Anne Conway. She also had like some great ideas on the idea of God and creation. So, and she was also in touch with Henry Moore. Um, so these That's are maybe, right. Yeah. yeah. So they all. So so she lived around the same time as um, Margaret Cavendish as well. And in fact, she knew of her. I don't think she wanted to associate with her terribly much, which is a bit unfortunate because she would have been the perfect correspondent, and Cavendish wouldn't have had to have imagined um, her female correspondent in the philosophical letters. Um, Anne Conway was um, a, a woman who uh, met uh, this man, Henry Moore, when she was in her late teens. He was the tutor of her brother at Christ College, Cambridge. So he was a Platonist, a very learned man. They struck up a friendship and um, in the letters I've included in the volume, you can see him um, giving her one of the very first 
uh, Cartesian correspondence courses. So a, a correspondence course on Descartes' philosophy uh, and, the, and the principles of philosophy, which, as I said earlier, he translated for her. And um, this enabled her uh, to, again, to develop a kind of confidence to develop her own views. And in her later philosophy, interestingly, she actually takes issue with a number of Henry Moore's ideas. So, as I said, um, she was principally concerned with what kind of world would a just and benevolent God create? And Henry Moore thought that, uh, you know, in the created world there were minds and there were bodies and they interacted by means of this vital congruity. And every now and again, um, the... um, not just every now and again, but in every um, different level of life, uh, spirits would take bodies as their terrestrial vehicles and use them um, until, of course, those vehicles died and they had to move on to some other sphere. And she thought this was uh, nonsense, um, that, in fact, all of creation emanates from the divine. So it was an emanative uh, model of causation here where all life and matter that takes place in the universe emanates from God's life and matter. Um, well, God isn't a material being, but God's life and um, activity, let's say. Um, and uh, this led to her to have radical differences with more. There's, there aren't just uh, spiritual things out there that have to take a body as a vehicle in order to um, move in the material world. Rather, all matter is um, just... Uh, you know, is is um, just a different uh, hardened form of spirit, if you like. And so it naturally has its own power of motion and perception and so on. So it sounds, I know it must sound a lot like Cavendish's philosophy, and it is interesting that two women philosophers in the period have such a similar metaphysical theory. But, of course, there are radically different starting points here because Conway was more of a religious thinker um, in her later life she actually joined the Quakers, which was very controversial, and that led to almost a, a, a complete breach with Henry Moore because the Quakers, um, who were um, a Protestant religious sect of the period, um, just a new uh, sect of the period, um, they uh, were treated with suspicion and um, not uh, exactly embraced by the um, conventional society and and uh, she wasn't necessarily just passively receiving ideas from say uh, henry moore mm. right she became critical of yeah. his philosophy maybe yeah i think it's because she really did think very carefully about what god's attributes implied for his creation so here's this difference with Cavendish. i was talking about Cavendish just says let's just put spiritual substance aside and let's put god aside and all supernatural things including witches and demons. She didn't believe in any of that, but many of her contemporaries did. But Conway, on the other hand, starts with God and she builds her entire philosophy on the basis of what a just and benevolent God, what kind of creation he would have. And, of course, he would have one that uh, did not condemn people to hell for all time. So this was very radical view of the period. Would give every life form an opportunity to improve itself, to become better. Um, and of course, she she also posited um, an intermediary between God and His creation that he, she variously called middle nature or uh, or Christ, Jesus Christ. Um, so 
um, it, this led to radical differences between her and Moore, just this very starting point. I think she thought that Moore should have started there because he did believe in a just and benevolent God and he really did need to think more about what God's justice would imply for created things and that they all needed to share in God's attributes in some way or reflect God's attributes. And she, she um, became bold enough in her later works to actively criticise the fact that he didn't follow through on those implications in his own philosophy. Hmm. Um, how about uh, the next, the third philosophy to talk about in the book? Uh, if I'm pronouncing the name correctly, Damaris Cutworth Masham, right? Yes. Yeah. I, I just, I'm a straight, uh, you know, I just, I just go for it in, in bold Australian. I just call it Damaris <laughs> Masham, Damaris Masham. Um, but there's some controversy about that because when I recall uh, one scholar um, took issue with, calling her Masham and um, said, uh, Masham is something you do to potatoes. It is Marsham. So Goods Queen English is Marsham, but there's no R there to, to Australian. It's Masham. So Damaris Masham was a moral philosopher of the time. She was a close friend of a very famous uh, British philosopher, John Locke, whose ideas uh, we still discuss today. Um, she was very fortunate to have met him in her early 20s and um, she met him through mutual friends. And he immediately had to go into exile because he was plotting a revolution. The, the, um, the, the stories vary on that. But he, he went into exile because um, he didn't feel welcome in England. And they corresponded during that period while he was away. And when he came back... Um, he met uh, with Lady Masham and her husband and they invited him to come and stay at his house and he, he spent his final years, uh, the final uh, 15 years or so of his life um, at uh, their estate. And, uh, of course, Masham benefited greatly from having him as a daily interlocutor and he benefited from having her as um, someone to converse with about his ideas. He he edited and revised many of his books while he lived with her um, and um, she was in fact herself the daughter of a philosopher, uh, another of the Cambridge Platonist, a friend of Henry Moore's, Ralph Cudworth. Um, so she would likely have had a better education in philosophy than most women of her time. She lived in the rarefied um, atmosphere of Christ College at Cambridge. So she's one of the few women at the time who would have um, had some familiarity and closeness with academic philosophy of the period. Um, and so I think this made her a very, uh, very good companion to Locke in his final decade or so of life. And, and they also, uh, she, she also had some disagreements with John Locke, and, 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 and it's great to know that they were not just simply passively. Be yeah. receiving those ideas, yeah. she actively criticised. Yes, she uh, did. I think he found like. her beneficial for that. Again, it just goes to show how collaborative and cooperative philosophy is, even in a period that valorised that wholly original, independent approach to philosophy that John Locke and, and people like him were advocating. So, yeah, they in the letters that I've included, they begin with a quarrel. It's a very friendly quarrel, but um, there's something at stake here because he's kind of challenging her upbringing in that Platonist epistemology that she was so familiar with. One of her Platonist contemporaries, uh, John Smith, had argued that 
the very highest state of knowledge was one in which you were so purified, you had, you know, you had engaged in this kind of meditative life, which meant that you had opened yourself up to receive direct divine inspiration from God. And so they were arguing about, is this the highest kind of knowledge? And Locke's viewpoint, if you, if anyone's read Locke, they'll know straight away that he would say, this just doesn't qualify as knowledge. It doesn't qualify as knowledge because um, knowledge is something that God gives to us indirectly um, by bestowing us with the capacity for reason that we then use uh, to, um, you know, uh, to, to fathom uh, certain truths and so on. And God doesn't, doesn't, doesn't give us direct inspiration. Of course, Locke's worry was that um, this, these claims to direct divine inspiration gave rise to political controversies and religious ones or religious political controversies in which certain groups of people claim to have the truth directly delivered to them by God. And they were not beholden to reason. They didn't have to give rational arguments for their beliefs. And this was very troubling because uh, Locke thought that all beliefs needed to be um, passed by the touchstone of reason. Um, and you could come up with any kind of uh, contradiction here and, and have it believed. Uh, so he was, he was a great opponent of um, contradictory ideas in religion that people just believed blindly without questioning and of course, this left him open to um, charges of heresy and charges of irreligion in his works because he was so keen to challenge um, these baseless um, religious ideas that were not compatible with reason. But Nashan's interesting because she doesn't want to say outright that the uh, philosophers of her upbringing were, um, were kind of religious fanatics who didn't I think you know didn't uh, follow reason were not obedient to reason she said she she made him kind of come to this kind of compromise position where he allowed that it could be knowledge direct divine inspiration could constitute knowledge provided that it was compatible with reason and didn't introduce any ridiculous absurd contradictory ideas so um, he did in fact uh, we know because he published um, a, an additional chapter to one of his most famous works where he discussed this issue, we know that he thought about it a bit more carefully and that she may very well have influenced him to take a more moderate position on, on divine inspiration. Um, so uh, in that case, it, the disagreements worked both ways. She eventually came around to his way of thinking about reason as a natural faculty given to us by God and certainly didn't have any um, kind of religious notions of knowledge creeping into her later epistemology. Mm. And the last person you discuss is Elizabeth Berkeley Burnett, or Burnett, if I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing it correctly. <laughs> so can you, yeah, can you please introduce her? And uh, what one thing I found interesting about her was that she sort of acted like a like an intermediary between, in a dispute between John Locke and Edward Stilling Fleet. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so that once that was known as like one of the most famous disputes in the history of philosophy, which is always very surprising to me because it's very long and very boring. <laughs> no one ever discusses it anymore. But it, at the time, it was a hugely famous dispute. So um, John Locke. Uh, so uh, the living uh, friend of uh, James Maschen that we were just discussing, he he wrote a very famous book, the essay concerning human understanding, and uh, he said 
he had heard before he published it that uh, a great storm was coming against it um, because people thought that some of those ideas that he had concerning knowledge and reason and so on and the limits of human understanding would lend themselves to sceptical and atheistic ideas. And uh, you know, history in some ways has kind of proven his critics right to some extent, but at the time he was very keen to defend himself. So when this man, Edward Stillingfleet, came out, the Bishop of Worcester came out and and pointed to the fact that his ideas undermined the doctrine of the Trinity, the seemingly contradictory idea that there are three persons within one person. And, uh, of course, the immateriality and the immortality of the soul. Locke thought that we couldn't have an idea of the essence of the soul, and that was thought to be extremely controversial for arguments that the soul would continue to live after the body had died. And also he's thought to have undermined one of the key proofs for the existence of God based upon the idea of God. So there are a number of extremely controversial points in in Locke's um, uh, essay. And uh, the man who attacked him, Stillingfleet, we don't really remember him today, but he carried a lot more weight and authority than Locke did at the time. Locke was still pretty much a newcomer. and wasn't the giant uh, that we see him today. So he's keen to defend himself, and uh, but he was very quick to anger. In fact, I mean, Locke seems like a very lovely man, but all his, all his friends commented perhaps if he was prone to one vice, it was that he was very quick to get uh, upset about things and angry. And so he was quite angry and resentful at the way Stillingfleet presented his epistemology, his theory of knowledge in uh, Stillingfleet's work. And, uh, and then we have Elizabeth Burnett come in the middle of the debate, friend to Stillingfleet and friend to Locke. And this hasn't been discussed much. It's in the letters. She's she's um, she's not the best writer. Her spelling is just absolutely atrocious. Even for a woman in the early modern period, her spelling is appalling. But she enters into this debate and she tells him that he's gone too far, that he's misrepresenting Stillingfleet's arguments, deliberately and willfully misunderstanding what this man is saying and not showing the least bit of charity. Could he please stop doing that? In fact, it would be better, she says, if he didn't say anything at all. And unfortunately, he didn't heed her advice and he just kept churning out these 300, 400-page books and he would send her presentation copies and... You can see in the correspondence her absolutely dreading to receive them, but commenting on them, you know, from this artless point of view, from this uh, point, the point of view of a friend who wants to mediate between these people and get them to interact in a way that is constructive, that will lead to some kind of um, useful and beneficial outcome. So I think their correspondence is really interesting in that light. And her acting as an intermediary between these in this dispute also helped her develop her thoughts in, in her book, The Method of Devotion. That's right. I mean, The Method of Devotion is very religious work, but there are passages where you know she's commenting about the Locke still in deflate debate, and she goes through all the things that would mean uh, that disagreements become. Uh, futile and become uh, fruitless, you know, and she lists all the things that were going wrong in the lock stealing fleet dispute, that one party was not showing charity to the other, that they were willfully misreading, that there was no humility, that there was too much pride at stake, that pride is a, a sin in intellectual disputations because it means you're not open to listening to the other person. And 
So I find her work very interesting for uh, underscoring something that Locke himself was trying to put across in his essay, which is that a lot of disputes are needless. A lot of disputes happen and, and they spill over into political contexts and they can, in fact, lead to violence. And Locke was well aware of that, well aware of that, living through um, a revolution in his time. Um, and so, uh, you know, that it was an important uh, point to get across and um, she, she finds, um, you know, she explores this to some extent in her method of devotion about the best way to carry out disagreements with people. Uh, before we end this conversation, is is just would like to ask if there are any books or projects you're currently working on. And before I answer, I should uh, maybe tell our audience that uh, Jacqueline has promised to have another podcast with us talking about women philosophers' 18th century uh, correspondence. It's a book that I just received today, so soon we'll be having another conversation with her about the 18th century philosophers. But is there any other project you're working on, Jacqueline? <laughs> So I'm working on a couple of projects at the moment. The first one is um, it's a, an investigation into the philosophical foundations of women's rights in the early modern period. So a lot of people think that women's rights were a relatively new phenomenon, that they um, might have came along maybe in the 60s, maybe maybe with the suffragists in the late 19th century, but, but a relatively recent phenomenon. But my work um, seeks to uncover a recurring logic of women's rights in uh, the 16th and 17th century. Um, And by that, I mean a kind of recurring pattern of thought where women appeal not to rights, but to cognate or similar concepts to rights. And those concepts are dignity, excellency, nobility, and worth. And they often play a very similar role um, to rights. In particular, they give women authority and they give them the authority to make normative demands on other people and expect that other people will meet those demands. Um, So that's a very exciting project, um, uncovering the hidden and untold history of women's rights prior to the late uh, 18th century. And um, another project I'm working on is is related but different. It's looking at the Stoic influences on women's um, thought in the early modern period. So there was a bit of a Stoic revival in the 17th century when the works of well-known Stoics such as Seneca and Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus and so on were being republished and translated such that anybody could read them. And if you look at women's writings, they embraced the Stoic philosophy, this idea that um, our happiness is entirely in our own power, that we need only cultivate uh, virtue, which is a skill, it's the skill of rationally selecting those things that are in accordance with our nature, um, and that we mustn't um, we mustn't overvalue external things such as wealth and health and so on. Uh, rather, we must um, realise that our happiness lies in cultivating virtue alone. So you find that in women's texts. But the reason that this um, strand of Stoic thinking in women's philosophy hasn't really been recognised is there's... Um, an array of genres they use to explore this issue. So letters is one. In fact, there's a bit of stoicism that comes up in the Masham letters. Um, They also explore it in their poetry, in their religious works, their conduct manuals, their educational treatises and so on. So this is one of the things that has led to women kind of being marginalised in the history of philosophy, I think, 
back in the day, back in the 17th century, even the male philosophers wrote their philosophy and poetry. They used a variety of genres. They were certainly uh, publishing collections of letters and essays and so on. And we seem to have forgotten that by, by just concentrating on the standard philosophical treatise. So if you go to different genres, that goes some way towards um, you know, reintroducing women into the history of philosophy, reincorporating them and, and showing that they did make a valuable contribution to the shaping and development of philosophy in their time. Professor Jacqueline Brad, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to talk with us uh, about your wonderful book. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you.